Um, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, this is uh, what we've been studying, and um, you know, I think you'll see we're going to finish 1 Timothy chapter 3 uh, today, and you'll see that it's, a, it's actually quite a fitting end to our, our year. And I didn't do a master plan for 1 Timothy. This just happened this way, as God often does. Um, and this is just a beautiful section of Scripture. We've actually looked at verses 14 and 15 before of chapter 3 because Paul in those verses states his whole purpose for writing these, these letters. Um, and it speaks about our conduct, the conduct that is becoming of people who belong in the house of God, who is the church of the living God. And Paul has talked a great deal about conduct so far, even in just a few chapters, hasn't he? He talked hard to the men about what kind of men should be in a church, the conduct of men. He's talked to the women, the conduct of women, spoken about the conduct that's required of men as elders and leaders of the church, and even the conduct that is required of men and women in the role of, of deacon and deaconesses. Why is our conduct of such vital importance? Because it upholds the mission of the church. The mission of the church is so important because it upholds the message of the church. So what is the mission of the church? What is the message that the church has for this world? Well, we're going to look at those two things briefly today. So let's just look in our Bibles. It's 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's verses 14 through 16. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you for the opportunity to study it, to read it today, to hear from you. We pray that your spirit would illuminate the truth of these wonderful verses to our hearts, Lord, that we might apply them for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A very simple outline for you all today. We're just going to look at the mission of the church and the message of the church. So the first is the mission of the church here in verses 14 and, and 15. And we really only briefly read over these uh, verses. We haven't really dug into them as of yet. And if you note here in the beginning of verse uh, 14, Paul is talking to Timothy. He says, these things I'm writing to you so that I, I hope to come to you. I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I'm writing these things to you. So if you remember, Paul established the church in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. And I presented to you the, 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 the facts, the evidence I believe leads to this conclusion that Paul did in fact get imprisoned uh, in Rome, but that he was released from that first Roman imprisonment. And in that extra journey, he went to Spain and he visited some of the key, uh, key churches where he administered. And one of those would undoubtedly have been Ephesus. And so in Ephesus, he was there with Timothy, but Paul needed to go on into Macedonia and to, to strengthen some of those churches. So he left Timothy behind in Ephesus. And while in Macedonia, he wrote him this letter. So clearly, Paul had a hope to get back to Timothy, but for whatever reason, he wasn't able to come as soon as he wished, or even possibly maybe not even at all. And so he wrote to Timothy to instruct him on how to strengthen up that church. And much of what Paul has already said 
at this point, and much of what he's going to continue to say is written, as he says, so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. It's in this verse that we see the mission of the church. We've already covered, again, some of what Paul says here but, but, but about the church, but there are three phrases I just want you to look at what he says here. First, he says the church is the house of God, which is the metaphor not for the building. This isn't the house of God. The new building we will be purchasing isn't the house of God. You and I, we are the household of God. The word is oikos. It's the same word that he used right back in verse um, 9, uh, about not 9, but verse 4, sorry, about an elder, one who rules his own house well, having his children. In, it's not his, his building. It's his household. It's his family. He must be able to manage his household well. And the house of God is the, the household. It is the people. It is you and it is I. And because we belong to his household, well, there's conduct becoming of a member who is part of God's house. He's the, the, the head of the house. He gets to make the rules. And you should know that all true believers, true believers, are members of God's household. Automatically. There's not an application process. You're just automatically members of his household. Ephesians 2.19 says this, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Paul is trying to tell them, listen, you're no longer a stranger to God. In fact, you're actually of his household. The second thing that Paul describes about the, the church here is that it's the church of the living God. In the Greek, it literally says the living God's church. I should define it this way. When, when we speak about the church, it's the universal church or the invisible uh, church. Church is not necessarily made up of the people that you walk in and see sitting in a, in a building. It should be. It's supposed to be, but not all the time. God knows those who are truly his, those who are really of his household, those who really are faithful to him. And so the household of God is made up of true believers all over the world who, who truly worship him in spirit and in truth. And that doesn't necessarily mean every, every person sitting in a pew or sitting in a seat. Do you understand what I'm saying? There are people who go and attend a church for all kinds of reasons, whatever those reasons are. But they don't really have anything to do with their worship of Christ and his lordship over them. They're not probably really of the household of God. It's the living God's church. The church belongs to God. It is not a man-made institution. Sadly, that's not what's communicated to the world. The church is often communicated as something we've constructed, and then you must do this to become part of this, where it's quite the opposite, actually. You come to Christ by faith, and you are part of the church. Acts 20, 28, Paul was talking to the Ephesian elders, and he says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to, the all, to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. God purchased the church. He purchased the church with the blood of his son. It belongs to him. And because it belongs to him, uh, um, it is, and it is his, then we must serve his purposes. The church is to serve him. What are the purposes of the church? Well, one is to bring in praise. Well, that's one of the purposes. The, the church is meant to glorify him. 
1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Last week, we had a great example of that, didn't we, of the dark room here, and Jesus is the light of the world coming in to this dark world. Well, he did that so we could proclaim his praises. We could glorify him. Another purpose of the church is that we would be used for his good. He wants to accomplish good in this world, and he wants to use his household to do that. And Titus 2.14 says that Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. He wants people that love him and want to serve him. But those are great purposes, but you know that those are not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is stated with Paul's third description here. I want you to note what it says there in verse 15. It is the pillar and ground of the truth. The other two descriptions give us the proper sense of what we belong to and, and who we belong to, but, but, but here, this, is, this description gives us the why. why. Why is church conduct so important? Because the unbelieving, skeptical world is not scrutinizing your doctrine necessarily. They're scrutinizing you. Do you believe it? Do you live that way? The church, the people of God's household, we are the pillar and ground of the truth. Pillar is a great word there. He uses it just means column or, or pillar or support. And Paul using that word, that was not lost on the Ephesians because within Ephesus, they had the magnificent temple of the goddess of Diana. It was one of the seven uh, ancient wonders of the world. And it was magnificent. It boasted 127 marble pillars all around it. And those things were pillars to a, a building of false religion, to false gods. And Paul says, but you, you are the pillar of truth. The church supports the truth, doesn't support false religion. Yet much of the church today, that's what it's supporting. This idea of, of works-based religion and what you have to do to earn favor for God. You can't do anything to earn God's favor. God sent his son. He just wants you to believe in his son and receive forgiveness for sins. The church is the support of the truth. But he also says it's the ground of the truth. That word is a very important word, hedra yoma. And uh, your, your, your Bible might say it's a bulwark or a foundation or support. It's the foundation on which the structure rests. The church exists solely to be the foundation and support of divine truth. That is the mission of the church. We must uphold truth. We must guard it. We must proclaim it. We must believe it. We must live it. We must read it. We must study it. We must meditate on it. All of those things are absolutely true. The church must hold unshakably to divine truth. We don't invent it. We uphold what God has already revealed as truth. And that is the collective responsibility of every single believer, you and me. How do we uphold divine truth? I sort of went through some of those things really quickly. And some of these things we studied in the summer. And we talked about how to know your Bible. First, I would say you need to hear it and believe it. Hear it and believe it. That's how... That's how faith comes to us. Romans 10, 17 says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by 
the word of God, doesn't it? We must hear the truth and recognize it as truth and believe in that truth. That is how faith comes to us. The Holy Spirit uses divine truth. He uses the word of God to transform lives, to bring about saving faith in each and every one of us. The Holy Spirit uses something that is living and active. We're told the Bible is living and active. It's not just dead paper. This is not just old tree. This is a living. It's alive. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces deep down beyond where any human can pierce into. It knows exactly what you need to hear. You need to hear it and you need to believe it. You also need to read it and memorize it. Psalm 119.11 says, Your word I've hidden my heart, that I might not sin against you. We don't just hear it, but then we go, I want more of that. <laughs> I want to read that. And I want to read that to the point where I'm able to commit some of that to memory so that I will not sin against you. We should study it and meditate on it. Reading is great. We should continue to do that, but we should, we should also delve into it deeply. We should study it. We should really chew over what God's word has to say. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. It's one of Dean's memory verses he chose for this month. I put on the newsletter. I actually wrote about that one because it's one of my favorite, Dean. It was so important, so huge for me in my early walk with Christ, Joshua 1.8 was. So read that. I have something to say about that in the newsletter. And there's a few copies back there. But you know what else is back there? There are Bible reading plans. It's so important that the church read through the Bible. And I know so many people struggle. You get into the Word, and maybe you, you start off hot, and then you sort of peter away, and you're not able to continue. Listen, it's a new year. Tomorrow's January 1st. You can start afresh with Him. And there are all kinds of copies I've put out there to, to fit your need. What, what will fit you? There are read through the whole Bible in a year plans, but there's also maybe a year is too quick for you. There's too much reading. There's a two-year plan back there. There's one that has a year one and year two. Just look at it. Maybe it'll take two years to get through God's word. That's okay, but be in God's word. Maybe that's even too much. Maybe, you know, I just can only handle the New Testament. Old Testament's really rough on me. There's a New Testament one you can do. A New Testament one you can do in six months even. But whatever you should be doing, you should be reading God's word and you should be doing it daily. There's many plans for you to choose from. Last year, we, we challenged everyone to do the same and so many of you um, did that. And I wanna encourage you to do it again. It's not a one-off. I just finished this morning. I brought out my, my completed thing and I said, look, it's all highlighted green. You know, I was able to highlight it all. And I was so encouraged by what I read today. And I'm, I'm just convinced uh, that uh, the gospel of John is one of the best endings of a book ever. I just love it. And I could write a whole lot more, but you know the, 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 the books wouldn't fit in this world, basically. I could, I, you know, it's amazing. What an amazing ending. We, just read God's word. We need to read it, memorize it, study it, meditate on it. You can't do that if you don't have a plan. Also, obey it and live it. John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's how we show that we truly do love him and truly want to serve him. We must obey him, and we got to know God's word to do that. And one more, we should defend it and proclaim it. If we're the pillar of truth, we've got to know it, but then we've got to defend it, and we've got to be proclaiming it. 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. The great mission of the church is to uphold and support and proclaim and defend the truth. 
And as if to give us an example, Paul next states a common um, confession of the early church. It's, um, it's the basic message of the church. What is the message the church is trying to uh, proclaim? If you could boil it down in a nutshell. And that's what he gives us here, the message of the church. Look at verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Without controversy there, it's an adverb form of homologeo. The adverb form was a much longer word. So I said, I'm just going to tell you homologeo. And it means to, to, to say the same thing. So this word here means confessedly or, or without question or without debate. In other words, the truths that are about to follow from Paul's pen here are truths that every true believer agrees upon. You might say it's the unanimous conviction of all true believers. Without controversy, these are, the, these are not the gray areas. These are the foundational things. These are the fundamental things. These are the things we don't debate, the truths that we all agree upon. And Paul proclaims, because that's true, great is the mystery of godliness. It parallels the mystery of the faith. Paul had used that word mystery um, again already. And, and remember, I mentioned last week, I think it was, Paul used mystery quite frequently in his writings. And mystery really meant he was referring to um, a, a previously hidden truth that has now been revealed, usually hidden in the Old Testament, but now made manifest. And he primarily used it in reference to Christ and the plan of salvation because that was hidden in the Old Testament, but now it's revealed. And he says, the mystery of godliness, great is the mystery of godliness. That's the revelation of the person uh, uh, and the work of Christ. And you know what, why he's telling us this right here? Because he is the key to godliness. He's been talking about godly conduct, hasn't he? But you can't do it in your own power. But Christ coming to die for us, to live his life the way he lived, this sinless life, and then to die for us, and to send his Holy Spirit to, to live within us, all of that makes godliness possible. You can actually have godly conduct because of what Christ did. And that's why Paul's saying <laughs> this is an amazing mystery. Godly conduct is Paul's concern. And without the truth of Christ, we could never become saved and we can never become the godly in Christ. And so what follows is an amazing six-line uh, hymn. It would have been part of an early church creed or song. And the six lines fall into three pairs of contrasting couplets. You'll see them here, flesh versus spirit, and angels versus Gentiles, or, or it's ethnos, so men, and the world versus glory. So look at the second half of verse 16. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Let's look at the first contrasting couplet there. First, that speaks of the revelation of Christ. That's the revelation of Christ. God was manifested in the flesh. We just, we just talked a lot about this, didn't we? Even last week, this has been what we've been celebrating this whole Christmas season. In fact, was manifested there doesn't mean he was created in the flesh. Was manifested, phanerao, means to make visible. The invisible God was made visible to human eyes. That's an incredible thing. And like I mentioned last week, what it speaks of is the pre-existence of Jesus. Jesus didn't come into existence in that cradle as a baby. Jesus always existed. He simply took on flesh. He made the invisible God visible. You remember Hebrews 10 in our study in Hebrews 10? 
he quotes about Jesus and it, it fulfilling Psalm 40 in Hebrews 10. It says this, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. That was his human body. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I've come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, to do your will, O God. That was all of the plan and purpose of God the Father that Jesus would come and take on human flesh. A body was prepared for him. And he took on a body, but he was still God. Incredible. Colossians 2.9 tells us, For in him, that's Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. What? Bodily. The fullness of the Godhead bodily. Incredible. Now look at the second uh, half of that couplet. That's manifested in the flesh, but also he was justified in the spirit. There's the contrast with flesh and spirit. How was Jesus justified or declared or pronounced to be righteous by the spirit? I think Romans 1, 3 to 4 will help us with this. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So Jesus was born from the seed of David. He was in the line of, of David, but, but he was declared to be more than that. He was declared to be the son of God by what? The resurrection. It was the Holy Spirit that, that um, resurrected Christ from the dead. Romans 8.11 speaks of that, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, that's a, that's a mind boggler, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That, that declared him to be more than just a man, but the son of God. The full revelation of Jesus Christ, which all true believers must confess, is this, that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, that he lived a sinless life, and he died and was resurrected. Those are non-negotiables. The second contrasting couplet speaks of the witness of Christ. So we saw the revelation of Christ. The second set is the witness of Christ. Notice what it says. He was seen by angels that preached among the Gentiles. So there's the contrast with the angels and the Gentiles. The contrast is this. It's the supernatural world and the natural, seen by both, in both realms. Angels are supernatural beings, but the Gentiles, ethnos, speaks of the nations, of men. He's talking about humans. In the realm of the supernatural and the angels, and in the realm of the natural and men, he was seen or beheld by both. You think about the angels, they were constantly uh, a witness of the divinity of Christ, weren't they? Angels foretold the birth of Christ to, to Mary and to, to Joseph. We, we sang about them at his birth. The angels pronounced the birth of Jesus to shepherds. You think about Jesus' early ministry. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, resisted the devil, and after the devil left, we're told that angels came and ministered to him there. In the Garden of Gethsemane, at the end of his life, when he was praying to God the Father to take that cup from him and he was sweating great drops of blood, we're told even there that an angel appeared to him and strengthened him. Angels witnessed his resurrection. They were in the empty tomb. Angels appeared even to the disciples and comforted them when Jesus ascended into heaven. And today, Jesus is worshiped by a great throng of angels. 
surrounding the throne, singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wisdom and riches and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And one day, you know, he's going to return with, you guessed it, his angels. <laughs> angels were the supernatural witnesses of Christ. But ever since he came, believers around the world have been preaching his name among the nations. Believers all over the world seen proclaiming Christ as, as Messiah, as, as Lord. And Jesus told his disciples that they would be witnesses to me. They'd be witnesses in Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth even. Incredible. So the witnesses are seen here in both realms. In the final area, the final area speaks of the reception of Christ. He was believed on in the world and received up in glory. And again, we see the, the contrast, two separate geographies. He's believed on in the world, but also where is he today? Received up in glory. Incredible. After the very first sermon that Peter preached at Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved. That was sermon number one. And Jesus issued that command to his followers to go into all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's continued to happen over the centuries. He has been believed on by millions of people over the centuries. The sheer numbers of people over the years who have had their lives radically changed by this person, Jesus, how do you explain that? Incredible. And Jesus, when he was finished with his work here, he was taken up in glory. That's where he is today, at the right hand of the Father. The moment that happened in Acts 1-9, I love how this is described. When he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And that's why we look for him to come the same way, on the clouds, because we're told that's how he's going to return. Hebrews tells us that after he himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Incredible, isn't it? The point of this hymn coming to us at the end of this chapter is to show us that the godly conduct Paul has been asking for in here is... Uh, certainly becoming of those who belong in the house of God, which is the church of the living God and the pillar and buttress of the, the truth, but it's only possible because of this confession, because the truth of what is proclaimed in these words. What we believe about Christ is everything. We confess that he was revealed in his incarnation and his resurrection. We confess that he was witnessed by angels in the spiritual realm and men here on earth. And we also confess that he was received in earth. Millions of people around the world adore and worship him today, and he's received in heaven and sits down at the right hand of the Father. We are the church, <laughs> and because we're the keepers and the proclaimers of God's holy word we're, and this wonderful truth, we're, we're called to conduct ourselves in a way that will glorify him. I don't know what kind of year all of you have had. Maybe you really started off on a high, and you thought, you know, this is going to be a new year for me spiritually. And maybe I had a, had a crash somewhere along the way. So maybe you're just feeling like, uh, I just can't seem to get, you know, get, get past these things. Here's the amazing thing. We have a whole new, fresh year ahead of us. But that doesn't even matter, does it? 
because his mercies are new when every morning. Aren't you glad it's not just every year? <laughs> like, oh, I've got to wait till next year. But what a great time to just begin to recommit yourself to him. We have been entrusted with incredible truth, and we have an incredible uh, privilege. It is a privilege to say, you know what? I want to uphold that truth. That begins with how I conduct myself. Do I love you? Do I show I love you by my obedience to you? But you know what? Because of what you believe, is that's what makes it possible. It won't be in your own strength. It'll be by the power of the Holy Spirit. That same Holy Spirit who rose Jesus from the dead. Don't you think that's power enough to help you with your conduct in Christ? It certainly is. So be encouraged, church. No matter what kind of year you've had, recommit yourself to him. Go grab a Bible reading schedule. Get in God's word, and you will find that this, this year ahead, no matter what it brings, more difficulties, sorrows, trials, troubles, victories, successes, whatever it might be, that you will find no matter what it is, if you're progressing spiritually, it's progress and it's success. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you for how you've timed this message for this, uh, the end of the year to bring us into a new one. And Lord, we just pray, Lord, that you would just kindle our hearts afresh to have a new fire for you, a new passion for living um, for you, Lord, with, with godliness, committed to faithfulness to you. Lord, I pray that we be committed to the reading and studying of your word. Lord, if we've started off great and, and maybe fallen off somewhere along the way, Lord, may this, this fresh start, Lord, not just be a start, but may you help us by the power of your spirit to just continue to walk with you, just a closer walk with you all along the way, Lord. We, we want that. We want that wonderful relationship that you promise us when we're obedient to you. And so I just pray, Lord, for your church, for your people here today, that this year, 2024, would be a great year of spiritual growth for each and every one of them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and we'll sing one closing song here.